Welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. And that was Zion Trinity singing opening prayer to the African deity, Eshulegba, a deity that lets us know that we always have choices, we are never victims. And we are so excited to have Marvin X on the air this morning with Michael Satcho to talk about this really wonderful book that just came out, Tariq which um, is within itself a novel or a book because of the journey and how long it took for um, this wonderful work to finally make it uh, out into the public. So good morning. Welcome to both of you. Yes. Assalamu alaikum, Wanda. Good morning. Wa alaikum as Good. Wa alaikum as Good morning. Good morning. So, um, Marvin, you haven't been on the show in a while, but I'm sure, you know, your your reputation precedes you as our guest, and we're so happy to have you. We're so honored. So I'm going to read read your bio from your wonderful, one of your wonderful uh, blogs, um, the Blackbird Press News and Review. People can check that out on Blogspot. And, uh, and you write in your bio uh, with a lovely picture of Amiri Baraka, um, you and he um, smiling, uh, for the camera <laughs> back in um, March 11, 2009 at the uh, Linsic Theater in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And that photo was by Don Usner. What were you What were you doing there in that picture, um, Marvin? What was the occasion? Uh, it was, a, uh, it was uh, a conversation between Amiri Baraka and myself. Mm-hmm. And uh asked me to come to uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico. Matter of fact, uh, Baraka invited me to uh, mm-hmm. introduce him. And he spoke for a few moments, and then he and I sat down for a conversation on stage with a packed house. And uh, the conversation went so well that after the formal program, you know, you usually have dinner. Well, for the first time in the history of the Lanan Foundation, uh, Mr. Lanan asked if if Barack and I would continue our conversation at dinner, <laughs> which we did. Oh, so it was a great awesome. event. Mm-hmm. It was a great event, and I was paid handsomely. That's nice. And it was uh, it was it was beautiful. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah, really beautiful when an event is is 
you know, <clears throat> both um, emotionally and spiritually and intellectually uplifting, and then you get paid too. That that makes it just That's like right. sort of like well-rounded, good feeling. So Marvin X uh, was was born May 29th. We have a birthday coming up in 28 short days uh, in 1944 in Fowler, California, nine miles south of Fresno in the Central Valley of California. So that's where they grew. That's where the food is grown. In Fresno, right. his parents published the Fresno Voice, a black newspaper. Marvin attended Oakland's Merritt College, where he encountered fellow students um, who um, be- and who became Black Panther Party leaders, founders, uh, Bobby Seale and Huey Newton. They taught him black nationalism. Marvin's first play, Flowers for the Trash Man, was produced by the drama department of, at San Francisco State University in 1965. Marvin X dropped out to establish his own Black Arts West Theater in the Fillmore in 1966, along with playwright Ed Bullens. Months later, Marvin would co-found Black, the Black House with Eldridge Cleaver in 1967. Marvin introduced Eldridge Cleaver to Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale. Eldridge immediately joined the Black Panther Party. Uh, Huey Newton said, and this is a quote, Marvin X was my teacher. Many of our comrades came for his Black Arts Theater. Bobby Seale, Elgis Cleaver, Emery Douglas, and Samuel Napier, end quote. One of the movers and shakers of the black arts movement, BAM, Marvin X has published 30 books. Is that is that correct or is that wrong now? <laughs> Probably more. Yeah, I would think so. I published eight Including books in 11. Okay, so you're almost up to 50. I don't know. I don't, I don't keep track. I just write. Uh, 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 uh. Wanda, you know I write in my okay. sleep. I I could believe that. Yeah. So your writing includes essays, poetry, and your autobiography, something proper. Important books include "Fly to Allah," poems beyond religion towards spirituality, essays on consciousness, and how to recover from addiction to white supremacy. A manual based on the twelve-step recovery model. And that's a book that everyone should have and should be reading often. Yes. <laughs> Marvin received yes. his MA in English and Creative Writing from San Francisco State University in 1975. He has taught at San Francisco State University, Fresno State University, UC Berkeley in San Diego, Mills College, Merritt and Laney Colleges in Oakland, University of Nevada in Reno. He lectures coast-to-coast at such colleges and universities as the University of Arkansas, University of Houston, Morehouse, and Spelman, Atlanta, University of Virginia, Howard University, University of Pennsylvania, Temple University, Megar Evers College in Brooklyn, and UMass in Boston. His latest book is The Wisdom of Plato Negro, or Negro, Parables and Fables, Blackbird Press in Berkeley, he currently teaches at his academy at the, of the corner, 14th and Broadway, downtown Oakland. Ishmael Reed says, Marvin X is Plato teaching on the streets of Oakland. And so, so Marvin, um, because of this uh, COVID-19 and the physical distancing, uh, are, where, are, where is your, where's your academy at the, of the corner? Is it on Zoom or something? <laughs> uh, I may be at my academy on Lakeshore Avenue today, right there by Peach Coffee and uh, Trader Joe's. 
It's a good possibility oh. I'll be there today. I haven't been there in months because mm-hmm. I've been on a book tour and I'm working on this project with uh, Michael. And and, and uh, so I've been away from Academy of the Corner, but I may return today. Let's see how mm-hmm. we'll think about it after this interview. Okay. All right. Wow, that'd be a treat. So, so Michael yeah. Satchel, it's just amazing, you know, reading about your book, Tariq, that you worked on this script for 20 years. That's like a long time. 20 years. That's like that's like raising a child. Um, yeah. And well, Marvin, minute, you're the editor. Book. Yes, I edited the book. It was hard work. <laughs> hard work, but that's yeah. what editing is, right? But let me let's let me read you uh, Michael's biography. Okay. Can I do that? You sure can. Michael Satcher was born April 5th, 1951, Fresno, California. He is the youngest of six siblings. His family moved to San Francisco when he was six months old. His parents, now deceased, are the Reverend A.T. Satchel, Thornton, Texas, and Alberta Colston Satchel, Hugo, Oklahoma. They were members of the Pentecostal Church of God in Christ. His parents instilled a great respect and love of God's scriptures, love of family, community, culture, and tradition, and this is his foundation and strength. He grew up in the Fillmore and Hunters Point districts of San Francisco. Years later, his family resided in the Outer Richmond district. At age 12, he first read about the Moorish General Tariq Ibn Ziyad's conquest of Spain after cutting school because he was tired hearing about the glories of European history. His father said, sent him to his friend's black bookstore, Marcus Books, and he began reading the works of Jay Rogers and other black historians. Quote, Julian Richardson, the owner of Marcus Bookstore, sold me The World's Great Men of Color by J.A. Rogers. The Rogers book introduced me to General Tariq. Since reading about Tariq at age 12, I have held the thought of one day telling his story in my own words, well, this is that day, end of quote. Michael was a member of Nation of Islam's Mosque Number no. 26, San Francisco. He was also mentored by independent Muslim scholars, including Aaron Ali, Ali Sharif Bey, Alonzo Harris-Bettine, Ismaila, John Duwambia, Norman Brown, Issa Ali, Marvin X, and others. Michael graduated from San Francisco State University with a B.A. in broadcast communication, radio, and television. His many skills include television cameraman, video producer, event planner, promoter, marketing manager, sales, commercial photographer. Tariq is his first screenplay. Ladies and gentlemen, I introduce to you Michael Satcher. Thank you, Marvin, and thank you, Miss, for having us here. Wanda. Thank you, Wanda, for having us uh, on your program. I'm really honored to be here and to have the opportunity to express why and the importance of the history of uh, the the Moors uh, in uh, in Africa as well as in Spain and across Europe. Thank you so much for joining us. Wow. What was your first question, Jim? I'll get to it, Marvin, just a sec. Um, okay. Excuse me. <laughs> uh, 
so um I was when I was listening to your to your bio, I was just thinking, wow, we probably know some of the same people because I grew up in the uh in the nation of Islam and went to um temple and then mosque twenty six went to, I graduated from Muhammad University and uh, I first heard of Marvin um when and from one of his poems about the blackbird and and when I met him, I was just so awestruck and and you know because I just love that poem that was you know from one of his his books and we because uh, I could um I would go to the library right across from San Francisco State we lived in Ingleside and and I would okay. sit in the window of the library right there and look at what was going on in San Francisco State and one time I saw a graduation ending and people were in the robes and stuff and looking really excited and I thought oh. I want to go to the university so I could like dress up like that and be all happy and so anyway um yeah but Marvin X was a a real real inspiration before I met him and then after I met him because that poem was was set to music and my father would play it <laughs> on on our stereo mm-hmm. so anyway it was really wonderful um so I wanted to ask you if you could maybe talk to us a little bit about about you know going to Marcus Books um you know now that um uh, Ray Richardson is, a, is also an ancestor, and uh, and also if you could tell us about about J. A. Rogers and and this uh, this character, you know, that you discovered and that you sort of uh, sort of use as the um, as a centerpiece to tell us this story about the Moors in Spain, a story that not many of us know, and yeah, maybe you could enlighten us with that story. Okay. How um, I was introduced to Marcus Bookstore and uh, the wonderful Mr. Richardson was um, when I was uh, 12 years old, well, it must have been around 10 or 11, uh, my family moved uh, from uh, the Fairmore District to the Richmond District in the outer Richmond at 47th Avenue and Point Lobos. It was like basically a block and a half up from the Cliff House. And... uh, uh, as when I moved from the, uh, my family moved from there to to the Richmond district, from the Fillmore to the Richmond district. All of my friends were saying, "This is so wonderful. Everything is so great because you now you're living in a affluent area, and, and 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 everything is just good." But in actuality, for a young black man, it wasn't so good. Uh, for me, uh, I was pretty much. Um, uh, adventurous young man, a uh, very, very, uh, how could I say, I like people. And so um, I was a very kind of kind individual, and uh, people would take my kindness for weakness. And when I went out to the Richmond uh, and I attended Presidio Junior High, just to give you a highlight of, of my experiences out there, my first day um, out in, um, at Presidio Junior High, I walked into the homeroom, and it was a room full of uh, of uh, uh, Caucasians, uh, and uh, just a few uh, uh, other nationalities, mainly that, and then a, a sprinkling of a few blacks. And when I was walking to my seat, this guy stood in the right in the aisle as I was walking, right in front of me, and said to me, "Go around." And, and, and I was actually I was I was really confused. I just kind of looked around, and everybody in the class was looking up at me and looking at him. And I said, uh, are you kidding? Are you playing with me? What, 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 is this a joke or something? He said, no. I said, go 
around. And I said, oh, you're serious? He said, yeah, I'm serious. And uh, see, I'm from Fillmore, and basically the blacks in Fillmore are warriors. And so with all my kindness, I took that as a challenge. And so I, I accepted the challenge and uh, three uh, wonderful uh, laid blows, and he laid, on the, he, he laid flat on his back and his glasses all the way across the room. And then I just turned to the rest of the room and said, look, anybody else in this room got something to say to me? Say it now. And it was silent, and I went to my seat. So as I was a student at Presidio, these people would come up to me, uh, really, to tell the truth, I would have to be honest. I didn't really like it out there in the avenues because uh, in, in the Fillmore, I had wonderful friends. We had a rich culture. Um, you know, it was a, uh, at that time, Fillmore Street was, th- was thriving with businesses. Third Street was thriving with businesses. You know, I'd hang out in the, in the Fillmore with my friends, and then I'd go to Hunter's Point and hang, and, and uh, my uncle uh, 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 would cut our hair every uh, other week. So my brother and I, every, every uh, other week, would go to Hunter's Point to our uncle, uh, Albert Bodie, who uh, uh, they, they called him White Hat, and he would cut our hair. <laughs> Nobody cut my hair like my uncle. But anyway, so... That's the connection. But going back to Presidio, these people would just uh, come from nowhere, just disrespect and, and attack me, um, and um, and I fought back. And uh, it got to a point to where is that, uh, yeah, I could defend myself. Had no fear out there, uh, uh, you know, of the individual. But you know, um, it was just too much. And then also. When I would stand up, when they would talk about history, I would stand up and, and say, you know, I want to introduce something about black history. And I would get in trouble for it. I mean, they would really roast me and, and uh, disrespect me, and I'd stand up for myself. But then sometimes I get sent to the principal, all kind of things, but just wanted to speak of our culture. And so I just started cutting school. I just wouldn't go. And when the report went to my father, he, he came to me and said, son, come in here. What is all these, uh, you not going to school? What are you doing? And so my father, he's a Pentecostal. If anybody is in that church, is very, very strict um, uh, religious uh, order where they, they don't use makeup, you don't, go to, you don't go to the movies on Sunday. There's a lot of re- restrictions. But my father was a wonderful father, and my mother was a wonderful mother. My father um, questioned me, and I told him, I said, Daddy, I said, I don't like going to that school because every time I try to, I, when, when I sit down in history class, everything is Italy, Rome, this, that, uh, 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 France, this, France, that. And then when I say, what about African culture? I get in trouble. So I just started c- cutting school. And my father said, no, 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 son, you're not going to do that. He said, he said but uh, as far as you uh, wanting to advance your knowledge of your culture, I'm proud of you for that, son. He said, I'm going to do something for you. He said, I'm going to send you to my friend, give you some money, you go and you see him, and he's going to help you. And I said, really? He said, yeah, you're going to go to Marcus Bookstore, and you talk to Mr. Richardson and tell him that I sent you, and uh, he will help you select the book. And what we're going to do, we're going to study our history at home, he said, when you go to, to, uh, the, to school, 
they teach you academics and they and they teach you some history. But our culture, we're gonna that is something for us, for me and your mother to teach you. And that's what we'll do. You bring the book home and you read and then uh, you ask me questions and I answer questions. So my father was really a great man. And so in that, uh, when I went to Mr. Richardson and walked in, <laughs> Mr. Richardson used to get on my case because I would always go to one section of the bookstore. And he would just watch me. He wouldn't say anything. He'd just watch me. And then and then he'd uh, say, son, come over here for a minute. And I'd say, yes, sir. He'd say, son, this is a bookstore, hundreds of books. Why do you just go to that one section? He said, he said, your father wants you to have a broad education. So I want you to, even if you just go back to that section, I want you to walk through the whole store and see what's, and take an assessment of what's there. See, back when I was growing up, we listened to adults. Hmm. We said in the Fillmore and across the black community, steel sharpens steel. What does that mean? That means that a young black man listens to the older black men and the older black women because they are our guides. Today, our children are listening to anybody. They listen to uh, what the society says, what these people, uh, uh, maybe the, um, what, um, the Latinos' perspective of black the Asian perspective of black, the European perspective of black, everybody's opinion about black except black people. I remember that I was telling a young person a story. They asked me about the Haight-Ashbury. And I said, oh, uh, this is my experience, because at one point I lived on Haight before the hippies came and was there while they was there and after. So I said, uh, I gave some knowledge to this person, and you know what they said to me? <laughs> That's not true. And I said, okay, this person, I can't. It's, they always say don't cast your, your pearls to swine. Not that they're swine, but it, basically it means you're giving knowledge to someone that's not accepting it. Move on to someone who wants to accept it. So basically, um, dealing with Mr. Richardson was one of, one of the richest engagement beside my father that I could imagine, that man was a pillar in the black community. His family have made so many sacrifices. You, most people who are living today have no idea. This man did posters for almost for free for, for programs uh, in, in, of our culture in our neighborhood. That's right. I this man... That's right. This man uh, uh, was, a, was a scholar. I mean, his, the love that he gave me. When I walked out of that store and I read Tariq, I was, I was, I was, I was uh, fortified. And, and the thing of it is, in this society, regretfully, and, and, and believe you me, I don't, I don't really want to judge different uh, nationalities, but in this society... They do not want a black man to be a man. They do not want a black woman to be a woman. They don't want us to stand up and do something for ourselves. And so my father was a businessman. My father owned, uh, if you, like in Bayview, 
at Silver and Bayshore, there's a 76 Union Station. My father was a first owner of that station. My father owned property at 973, I mean 973 Hayes Street between Fillmore and Steiner, directly around the corner from the uh, Seven Painted Ladies in Alamo Square. He owned property on Hate Street. I'm talking about apartment buildings on Hate Street um, between um, Scott and Divisadero, which I lived on the top, and on the bottom was a <laughs> was a Willis's. Well, let me let me not okay. interrupt you, but yes. I want you to go back to um, Mr. Richardson and the book "World's Great Black Men of Color" that okay. he introduced you to, J. Okay. Rabbi J. A. Rogers. Thank you, Marvin, for keeping me on track. I miss that book should be in every black family's library. You talk about um, Tariq was under uh, Ben Yusuf. And if you don't know the history of Ben Yusuf, Ben Yusuf, when you watch uh, commercial TV, they talk about El Cid and how he defeated the Moors and they, they, uh, uh, Charleston, Charleston Heston is playing El Cid and at the end the Moors are running. That's, that's fictitious. That's, that's, that's not true. Ben Yusuf defeated the best armies that uh, Spain put against him, and he actually um, killed El Cid. So his, um, history in this world has a way of, of taking something that is true and flipping it into a falsehood. So they've taken the history of the Moors, which is our history, the uh, Native Blacks, and, and, and uh, uh, blacks in the diaspora and flipped it is this is their history. This book, Tariq, is about an African black Moor who in 711 AD was commissioned by the Caliph El Walid I to go over to Spain and to Actually, he, he sent him over there. He really didn't want to go to Spain, but he sent him over there, uh, and he defeated the uh, Visigoths in two battles. But we're going to go into, we're going to chop this thing up and break it up so it makes much more sense. But um, uh, I kind of lost my place. Uh, what we were talking about, you were talking about Tariq uh, going into Spain at the uh, request of the Caliph. That's right. Look, Tariq, was was a black moor. Now, what does that mean? If you would look at the images of, of moors, they were tar black. Tar black. On some of the shields and, and uh, crests of European royalty, you see these black heads. You see uh, images of, of black men. And, and you would think to yourself, oh, they must be slaves. No, they weren't. Royalty. They were royalty. That's right. They were kings, queens. They were ambassadors. They were scholars. They, they. I can go on forever. But the, the basic thing, this story is showing how this black man with his black queen, Um Hakim, went to Spain and backed each other and defeated the uh, the Visigoths. Uh, King Roderick and his uh, 60,000 seasoned knights against Tariq's 7,000 Moorish cavalry and 6, 
hundred Arabs. And then uh, what a lot of people don't know when they talk about the Moors, <laughs> they say, oh, the Moors, here come Islam, here come the, the Muslims are coming. Moors, yeah, they were headed by Muslims, but just like, look at the Moors like this, kind of compared to the United States. If President Trump says, we're going to go to war with China, okay, he's going to get soldiers from the United States, right? Those soldiers are not going to walk up and say, I'm a Muslim, I'm a Jew, I'm a Christian. No. When the, when the president says we're going to war and call his people, it's going to be people of all nationalities coming. So when the caliph calls uh, his, his warriors or the territory that he rules, the, the people in that territory are going to have to come. Some of them were Jews, Hebrews. Some of them were Muslims and Christians, and some of those people were Africans who didn't work Muslims, weren't Christians, weren't Jews, but, but had an indigenous African tradition that we look down on, which is very powerful. We don't understand the power of our culture and our people and our traditions and rituals, and we laugh at them. When, 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 when I was growing up, well, now I'm I'm running. Let's stick to the to right the, there, Wanda. To the to the yeah, basics. Here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So uh, so continue on on how you came to write the script. Okay. Um, I had uh after you read the world's great men of color. After I re- okay after I read the world's great men of color. Um, You're 12 I, years old. I'm 12 years old. Okay. I go on to uh, uh, frequent. Um, Mr. Uh, Richardson's store, and I'm reading a, a number of different books. I can't give you the titles, but I had a real strong foundation in uh, black culture, in European history, in, in world history, uh, as a matter of fact. And so um, it kind of uh, was a little buried in, in, in my mind. But, it, but we're talking about the early 60s. So during the early 60s in San Francisco, as a black man, you go somewhere to, to, in San Francisco, you go to the uh, play land at the beach, or you go somewhere where there's a dominant white people, they treat you real bad. So at that particular age and time, I was getting attacked, and it just really uh, um, put a negative spirit in, in me. I, I wouldn't say negative, but uh, how could I say when you want to defend yourself against defensive, something? Defensive. Defensive, yeah. And so that's when... Uh, we formed uh, what they call gangs, okay? Uh, we call them clubs, gangs. I was a junior tyrant in Fillmore. And um, the guys that I grew up with were, were people who I went to elementary school at Dudley Stone on Hate Street when I was in the second grade, okay? A lot of them formed a, 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 what they call a gang, and I joined that gang. And, though, and where people have a negative connotation on gangs, but uh, everybody have gangs. The Republican Party is a gang. That's right. The Democratic Party is a gang. That's right. Uh, this women's movement is a gang. Right. And this uh, Me Too, where they're, where they're taking black men and roasting them across the, the uh, coals and stuff, like uh, our, our, our elder um, Bill Cosby. Now, I know I'm getting off the subject, but I want to just touch on this for a minute. Now, I'm 69 years old, so I was around when... Bill Cosby was doing I Spy and all that kind of stuff, okay? Bill Cosby gave the first 
not the first, but a wonderful uh, description on one of the Temptations album, and I forget which one it was, uh, but uh, introducing the Temptations. Bill Cosby was one of the first black uh, uh, stars that was in a major television program, all right, I Spy. And, um, and so during that time, he was a celebrity. I would go to around different shows and stuff. What people have, don't understand, and, and, and they judge black entertainment culture different than they do white culture, okay? You go to a concert in uh, San Francisco, it could, don't make a difference who it is. It could be the Grateful Dead or whatever. The women are out in the audience taking off their bras, throwing it on stage, throwing it on. They are coming on to the stars like nobody's business. That's right. So Bill Cosby didn't have to go and rape no woman, and he didn't have to secretly give them drugs. They came with drugs. They had their own drugs. They, a lot of them would have their own drugs and would chase down stars. You see it even today. Let Jay-Z walk down the street, and somebody say, there goes Jay-Z. They're going to chase Jay-Z, and Jay-Z had to run for his life. <laughs> but yet... They're saying um, that Bill Cosby is this vicious uh, bad person. Maybe he is, and I can't say he's not. But I can't say this. What about uh, uh, other uh, these white stars? You know, like uh, I don't want to name people, but they're out here. You know what they do? They're doing all kind of heinous stuff. Look at this Weinstein guy and 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 Epstein. And Epstein. He's just one. And so there's a different, uh, uh, how can I say, they standard for judging black and white, and this is what I was a victim of coming up. And so I, so I basically gravitated to gangs following my brother. My mother, told, my mother told me, so where's your brother? I said, I don't know. She said, what? <laughs> what do you mean you don't know? I said, well, mommy, my friends tell me that he's somewhere over the, when we lived on Hayes Street, he's somewhere over the Hayes Street down there, just in the uh, uh, lower, down by, um, uh, I said, Grove and Central over in that area over there. She said, she said, what is he doing over there? I said, I don't really know. She said, look, now this is my big brother. She said, you get your behind over there and find out what your brother is doing, and you watch your brother and make sure he's okay. And so in watching my brother, I joined the club. <laughs> I didn't even have to join. They didn't say, you in, Mike, don't worry about it. But what were these gangs and clubs doing back there? Okay. <laughs> we were having football games down in the panhandle by the, by the statue, giving picnics and stuff like that. But when a threat came to our neighborhood, we was the enforcers. So our, one of our sisters would come to us and say, we went up there the, and these men jumped on us and they did this and this and that. And they, we said, who? They said, those guys up there on Hate Street. We go up on Hate Street, find them, and check them. When I say check, I mean beat them up, okay? They fall back and sometimes we got beat up. But our thing was this. You touch a black woman, you're going to deal with us. I see these little brothers and sisters out here they, they're, they're shaming their people, and they don't even know it. They see a black woman being beat up, and they'll run up with their with they phone and say, world star, world star, when they should be running up protecting that woman. See, Let's, we um, have I want to ask you a question. our um, soul. Yeah, ask yeah. me. Um, I want to get back to um, 
to Tariq. Tariq. Um, but before we do <laughs> I'm that, sorry. Um, no, no, no. Before that, though, excuse me, Marvin, just a second. Um, before before we talk about Tariq, because I, I want you to talk about, because you're talking about how um, you know you and your friends would. Um, you know, would uphold the honor of, of black girls and black women when they would come tell you that, you know, they were being, um, someone was, you know, disrespecting them or, you know, doing things that weren't, were were scaring them or whatever, and you would go to their aid. And I wanted to, um, to ask you about the relationship between um, this general and his wife who also had her own um, army because it sounds just really, really fascinating. Um but before that, I just wanted to make a comment about your comment <laughs> uh, about okay. Bill Cosby and and Me Too, and uh, and, and you're right. Uh, you know, um, society, this society, uh, does hold um, people of African descent to a different standard than their own people uh, who are doing, you know, more. Than than the say you know African people of African descent are doing, but you know we don't know that necessarily these people are, are people that are in the limelight. And Bill Cosby, you know, he was a very powerful powerful man. Um, so you know he wanted to buy uh, a television station, a studio, so he could produce his own work. And um, and we see what happened. You know, his son was killed, and and then he was, you know, stripped of all of his his dignity in the media because of, you know, what happened. But I just want to say that, you know, um, this nation, you know, sets traps, you know, we call it COINTELPRO and, and people have That's choices. Right. That's right. And, and so, That's right. um, and I, and I don't, I don't like it when, when the blame is placed on the woman, you know, um, you know, like, okay, well, you know, she asked for it because, you know, she showed up at the event, dress like whatever, it doesn't matter <laughs> how the women dress or how they show up with whatever they're carrying. The men you have know, a choice. Go ahead. Yeah. I'd like to say something about that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, in regards to women and, and how they dress and how they represent themselves. Uh, the women in the current uh, society right now have uh, a certain way of dressing and, and, and conducting themselves. And so, uh, you know, they're, they're, they wear dresses very high where you can just pretty much see everything. You don't need to. But that doesn't give anyone a right to, to do any harm to them. See, uh, a lot of people – now, I'm going to get a lot of flag for this because, you know, telling the truth have left me no friends, okay? But I'm going to get a lot of flag for this. But um, people uh, really down – are, are kind of reject everything that the, uh, Elijah Muhammad has said. But you know one thing that he said about women? He said this. He said, and, and I can't say at what venue he said this, but it came to my ear. And he said, for the black man to rise above and to be at the height of his potential, he's going to have to take the black woman and raise her above his head. Now, what does that mean by that? He says that once the black man raised a woman above his head, the heavens and, and the, all the heavenly hosts will open up the heaven and all the treasures that the heaven holds will be in the black man. We must protect our woman, women. 
Hey, let me let me cut in here, uh, Michael and 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 Wanda, and read you a passage from uh, Mr. Satchel's script. And this passage is when uh, Tariq has taken over Spain, and he's speaking to the natives of Spain. And this is what he says. And remember, this is 711 A.D. The 8th century. He says, You natives of Spain shall not be set upon by us Moors to change any of your customs, languages, or religion. You can retain your romantic and Semitic languages, enjoy complete civic independence with your religious institutions, laws, courts, judges, bishops, dukes, counts. The same freedom applies to you Sephardic Jewish citizens. As per women, in this society, women have been treated dishonorably, their rights trampled upon and disregarded. No longer will this be tolerated. Harsh and swift penalties will be enforced upon anyone who breaches the rights of women. From this day forward, women shall exercise equal rights under the new law. Yes, equal to their male countrymen. Women can walk any and all city streets unescorted day or night without fear and attend any and all schools, universities. The liberation of women is a must if they desire to hold civic positions. The law shall allow them to do so, and they shall share completely in the governing and rule of this country without limitation. This is 711 <laughs> A.D. Mm-hmm. Yeah. May I so say how, something, Miss? Oh. Go ahead, Wanda. Yeah, but let me, let me, you can hold your thought for a minute. I was just wondering okay. where in Africa were these Africans from, and why did they go to Spain in the first place? And, and okay, why that's did a very they good. Stay? Okay. Hello? Um, he, uh, when he passed, Abu Bakr uh, took over. And what they were doing is that in Arabia, what they call Saul Arabia, which is uh, Saul means black in Arabic, uh, black Arabia, they would take. Oh, you're you're um, coming in and out. I don't know what's happening, but I, I can't hear you. Hmm. I can't hear you all anymore. Oh shoot. Hello. Oh darn. Mm. Islam. And, and oh, they you know, were um, excuse me for excuse me for a second. Um, uh, I can't hear you. Um, everything you said. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I couldn't hear any of it. You you were silent. Okay, I'll go back. Can you hear me now? Can you yeah, hear me I can now? Hear you now? Yes. Okay, I'll go back. Uh, if you know the history of Islam, when uh, about the uh, Prophet Muhammad uh, um uh, a peace and blessings of God upon him. Um, when he passed, Abu Bakr took the reign. And okay, it's it's silent again. 
was a, a queen up there. Okay, and they was, excuse uh, me for a second. Um, gosh, it's really weird, Mrs. Satchel. Um, I don't know what's happening, but after you um, – Oh, let said, me just put – let after, me bring this closer Pablo to After Papa Mama died, um, then and we had okay. nothing – Okay, after the prophet passed, can you hear, you? Can you hear, can, me, can you hear me now? Right. Mm-hmm. Am I audible? Okay, yeah, I'm sorry about that. Yeah. Okay, after the prophet passed, uh, peace and blessings be upon him, um, mm-hmm. Abu Bakr took the, the, the uh, reign, uh, mm-hmm. and he started expanding Islam, all conquering, conquering, conquering all into Europe. All into Europe. And Spain was one of the and Spain places. was one of the places that he that he conquered. But you asked about the the tribes. There was a queen, uh, Dahlia. They called her in Arabic. They called her the witch, because every time the the black uh, queen. she was a black queen. Every time the uh, the Muslims would attack her, her people would defeat them. They, her tribe was invincible until Tariq. Tariq, what is what they call what the um, Khalif called the tip of his spear. He had a cavalry of uh, black Moors of the Nafza uh, tribe of northern uh, Morocco, n- northern Africa, which would, could be Algeria, Libya, a, a, a lot of up there. And they were fierce, fierce, invisible warriors who were uh, master equestrians. They rode Arabian stallions. They were uh, blue-black men, and they were fearless. And Tariq was the general of them. Now, Tariq is, is also uh, known for his uh, uh, mastery of uh, battle strategies. In some cases, he's, he's, they, they mention him in the same name as Hannibal Barca, not on the level of Hannibal Barca, but what he did was very pivotal in history. And so... These uh, uh, um, Moorish uh, uh, Nafsa tribesmen were the same tribe as Tariq. And so his, his whole army was made up of his tribesmen. And, and if, he, if he told them to ride into fire, they would ride into fire. When he said something, it was immediate. They, they had no fear. And so it was these people who crossed over into Spain and uh, defeated the, the uh, Visigoths. But why did they go over there? There's, you'd have to, some of these things, you're going to just have to buy the book and you can read and then, or you can do yourself, his, do your own uh, historical research. All I've done is taken a, a true story, which I call the greatest true story never told and embellished it in my way and told it my way. Something, it's not, it's historical fiction. It's not just exactly what happened to Tariq, but it's the, it's, it's the, it's the story that I'm presenting and, uh, um, it's, it's, to me, I consider it something that's worthy for anyone to read. Now, I'm talking about the Black Moors, but what people don't really realize is that the Sephardic Jews, they joined Tariq's army. They looked at him as a liberator. The Spanish, uh, the Christian Spanish, they joined. When, when Tariq landed, they looked at him as a liberator. They were running to him because the Visigoths were very vicious. They uh, actually, the Visigoths came from the Danube. They're Germans, and so they came uh, when they were they they migrated into Spain. I, there's a whole history behind that, but I don't want to waste the Roman Empire and all called that. the Roman Empire. I don't want to go into all that. But anyway, they moved their way into Spain, and they were 
They were real serious warriors. They, they, you see people walk around talking about, I'm Goth, I'm Goth. Well, that's where they get that from. The Goths as a whole were attacking the cities of the Rome on the Danube River, and Rome couldn't protect itself. And so they just gave them free reign. And so basically they made a treaty with the Visigoths. Yeah. They made a treaty with the Visigoths not to attack them. And so the Visigoths split. The Astagoths, the Astagoths stayed on the Danube, and the Visigoths migrated, went around through Italy, and came on into Spain and defeated the population and just took over. So, oh, uh, one minute, minute ma'am. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so these so, warriors, so, mm-hmm. so so why did they go to Spain? Is that is that your question? Well, that was one of them, yes. Uh-huh. Okay. When Roderick, he, the, the Visigoth had a king named Wazita. He died. His son was supposed to um, take over. You know, he was a crown prince. He was supposed to become king. But the dukes of the Visigoth nation who, you know, were ruling Spain, they didn't want him to rise to, the, to, to become king because he was influenced by his sister. And his sister, when the father of the king was alive, was always tell the, the father, why are you giving all these dukes all this land? So they knew when this uh, crown prince would come to the throne that he was highly influenced by his sister and that his sister was going to try to take their land back. So they went to Roderick. He was a, a duke of uh, Batica, and I might be pronouncing it wrong. Anyway, they, they, they convinced him that they would bring all of their armies together to go against this prince, this crown prince, and defeat him and take the throne, which they did. And when they took the throne, they, uh, Roderick actually cut his head off and sent it back to Toledo where his sister was and said, when I come into Toledo, the palace there, this is what's going to happen to you if you're there when I arrive. And so she left with all her people and, and got on a ship and went to um, over to uh uh, Count Julian, who was, who had a, a city and a fort at the tip of North Africa, is impregnable, and they were allied to the to the uh, Visigoths in Spain. She went to him and tried to get, enlist him to go with her to go to the Caliph in Damascus, uh, El Walid the First, and ask him to send his legions, his armies over into Spain to defeat. Roderick and, and restore them to the throne. But the Caliph said, I don't want to do that. If I want to go send my army over, I send her over there when I'm ready. But he was gracious to them and said, you can stay over and, uh, and I'll give you my answer, my, my final answer in the morning. But in between that time in the morning, his, his queen, uh, um, El Walid, the first queen, uh, uh, clergy came to her and said, we know that they're asking the caliph to send his armies over into Spain, and he doesn't want to do it. But there's a reason he should. And they said, and, and, and the caliph was, I mean, the, uh, the, uh, yeah, the caliph was saying, why? She said, because the clergy told me that in 70 CE, 
the the Romans attacked Jerusalem. And when they attacked Jerusalem, they seized two items from the biblical prophet Solomon, his crown and his table. And they took it back to the cities of the Caesars on the Danube. When the Visigoths attacked the cities of the Caesars, they took possessions of it, of the, of the, of the biblical crown and table of the, the prophet Solomon. And they took it to Spain when they, uh, the Visigoths split from the, the Asagoths. The Asagoths stayed on the Danube, and the Visigoths migrated off, but they migrated off into Italy, I mean, yeah, Italy and into Spain. But they took with them the crown and the table of the biblical prophet Solomon that was taken from one of the holiest temples in Jerusalem. And so the clergy told the queen, so the queen told the king, you should send your legions over there. Yes, to restore law and order for the people of Spain, but not to put those uh, the the this queen back on the throne, but to liberate Spain. But the main reason is for your general to locate and take possession of the crown and the table of the biblical prophet Solomon, and return it to Damascus where they will return it back into Jerusalem in its original home. And the queen said, for that, you will be blessed by God. And that is the reason that the, uh, the Caliph El-Walid sent for Tariq and sent Tariq and his legions over into uh, Spain. Let me say this. Here's, now, here's uh, uh, Marvin. As we wrap up, uh, Wanda, I wanted to read another passage from the okay. script. Okay. And this passage is uh, Tariq encountered Islamic racism in mm. his conquering of Spain. And the, as the story goes, he only stayed in Spain for what? For two years, 711 to 713. And then he went back to Africa. Why did he go back to Africa? I'm going to read a passage where he is talking with his imam. The imam says, Amalekum, please, general, have a seat. Yes, right here. Now tell me, what is so urgent that could not hold until after the morning prayer? Wa alaykum salam wa rahmatullah, beloved imam. As you know, directly... After the morning prayer, I will command our cavalry and troops against the infidel queen. Well, this is, this is before he went into Spain. This is that battle with Queen Dahlia. That's right. Of northern Morocco. The imam grows impatient. Na'am, na'am, na'am. Go on, go on. Get to your point. Tariq says, Inshallah, I shall subdue them. I remain a devout believer, though lately... I have witnessed and experienced ill treatment from those who claim to be my brothers in Islam simply because of the darkness of my skin and my men as well. Now I wonder if I'm fighting the correct, I'm wondering if I'm fighting the correct adversary. The enemy I fight in the morning have not harmed me in any way. It is my so-called brothers in Islam who seek to deprive me and my men of justice, equality, freedom, and the goods of this world while preaching equality and justice for all. 
Imam says, General, ease your heart. They are the ones who will be the losers, for their work shall be lost in this life, and they will not have a favorable place with Allah in the hereafter. Go on. Please continue, General. Speak your heart. It will be good for you. Tariq continued. Now, I'm Imam. I shall continue. The Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, taught us we are all equal and that no man is above the other in Allah's eye. It is a person closest to Allah. Uh, which raises or lowers one's closest to the most high. They do not practice what they preach. And with this current situation, how do I, in good faith, call upon my brethren in arms to fight for a cause we all believe in, but is guided by some brothers whose words say one thing, yet actions are not the prophet's teaching. Peace be upon him. My men are angry and mostly confused by this double standard, and, and I share their pain. Lately, I felt like walking away. My heart is heavy, and I'm disillusioned. The imam says, I have witnessed some of this behavior you mentioned. Though it is not man, we are bound to and shall cling only to the rope of Allah, Quran, and Muhammad, the prophet. Surely Allah knows the true heart of every man, woman, and child. Those who believe, who behave in ways other than that taught by prophet, only hurt themselves, and they shall not prevail in the end. General, you go forward, fearless. And have no doubt, may Allah guide and bless you with a greater understanding of your purpose in life and that you remain faithful to the pillars of Islam and your lineage. O commander of the faithful, I pray your heirs will travel near and far, spreading the principles of Islam, and that this holy torch is passed unto each new generation and that they pick up where the previous generation left off until Islam is practiced in all parts of this planet. General Tariq, I relegate this mission to you and yours your heirs, spread Islam, and remain devout. So in the end, he, as I said, because of the same racism he, he encountered in Spain with his fellow Muslims and the goods of the battle and the conquering of Spain were not equally divided as was promised, he left Spain disillusioned and returned back to Africa and spread Islam. Mm. Miss, wow. I wanted to interject something right now, I if I may. Story. If I may, mm-hmm. real quick. Yeah, certainly. Go okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. A lot of people um, are, when you say Islam or you say uh, anything pertaining to that, they first thing they think of is Al Qaeda and all this kind of stuff right there. That's the first thing that they think of. But basically, I want to just ask you this question, and we'll make a statement. Okay, if you're a Muslim, when you greet someone, you say, Salam. And if you're a Jew uh, or Hebrew, when you greet someone, you say, Shalom. In America, we say, Peace. Now, in Jerusalem, though all the three religions are there, right? Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I say, but do you know anywhere on the planet where there's less peace? So in the 8th century, General Tariq was able to unite Christian, Muslim, and Jews together, unified in one army that went on with, with, with his brilliant battle strategy. Tariq faced 60,000 seasoned Visigoth knights against European, European knights, let's just say. And against, with his back to the sea, 
they had burnt their ship. They had nowhere to go. He gave a he gave a, a rallying speech. Tell his told his men that we have been sent here to restore justice to this land. We have been sent here to by by the Caliph El Walid and and uh, to to dispel and to dispose of this absurd and tyrant Roderick. He has left his castle and in his army and coming to engage you. Where are you going to run? The ocean is behind you, and the only thing you have to do is just to uh, uh, defy fear. Have no fear. Wade into these people and, 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 and take your rights. Basically, he went on to defeat them in two battles. The first battle... He, de- he defeated it, and Roderick barely escaped with his life. Excuse me. Uh, Wanda, how much time we have? Um, you should be wrapping up. Um, my, my next guest should be calling in shortly. Okay. You okay. have a question for him? Yes, go ahead. Um, Do you have – yes. I, I had one. I um, yeah. <laughs> I, I just wanted I'm so, to – I'm sorry that my I audience – with- no, no, you're fine. No, no, no. This has been, been okay. a great conversation. Um, no, I just wanted okay. you to um, let our audience know once again, because I know this is, you know, you're raising funds because this is a screenplay. Um, yes. So that means that this is going to be a movie. Um, and so you're looking to do, this is a fundraising um, yes. vehicle, this, this script. Well, so I wanted, let, I wanted you to let people know, <clears throat> excuse me, how they can get a copy and in your your um, you know how the people can be in touch with you. Okay, I have a um, a cash app at. Um, give, give them your phone number and email. Okay, my phone number is four one five seven five six twenty one forty six. My email is satchelmichaelj at gmail dot com. That's S A T C H E L L. M I C H A E L J at gmail dot com, and uh, the first uh, print is more promotional, and so we're having more printed up, and we're we're setting up our website and other ways that people can really contact us. So I wish that people would, you know, we're asking for uh, ninety nine ninety five as a donation for the book. Um, and we're just hoping that people will will respond to that, and that so that we can raise funds. But one thing that I want to say really quick: the funds that we're ra- uh, are raising, uh, we want to raise 150 million dollars. And people will say, "How do how are you going to do that?" Well, what uh, I have not said is that Tariq is a national hero in the Kingdom of Morocco. I sent my script over there with a Moroccan. And uh, he's an importer-exporter. He took it over there, and they went crazy. They're saying that if I can get a celebrity and funds behind me, they'll match what, whatever we have, uh, and, um, and, and maybe even more. Uh, the person that went over there, their family has direct contact to the king of Morocco. They are, they've been in uh, textile for over 500 years. Uh, the, the guy's name Mustafa. His, he has a actually he has a uh, a uh, a store right on Piedmont in Oakland, and uh, his brother's a cinematographer. 
They just want to get involved. And his brother's friend does documentaries in Spain. This is a, this is a story. This is a global story. We have Sephardic Jews. We have Muslims. We have Christians. We have uh, Spanish. We have the, the, the vine dressers. We have the people who are in the northern uh, Spain, the Basques, and, they, and their wonderful culture. And, and so it's a global story. I know I'm speaking from a perspective of black, but this is a global story. And I just want to reach out. And black history is world history, brother. That's right. Black history is world history. And so I just want to reach out to people and say, it's time for us to start telling our own stories. I hear people say, I'm tired of seeing the slave movie. I'm tired. Well, this ain't a slave movie. This is about a black warrior, warrior and his woman who stood by him. They say that black men and black women don't look out for each other. If, if, if you believe in that, read my, read my book. Contact me. This is something that we need to do to elevate. And in a time of this COVID-19, when people... Oh, um... You're you're um you're going out again. I can't hear you anymore. I can't hear you anymore. Mr. Satchel. So we're gonna have to um hmm, I can't hear you at all. So we're gonna let that that last part be the end of this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us and, and we'll definitely um you know, have you on again, and look forward to um, to seeing this work um, in the cinema. Good morning, Jamie, and how are you? Good morning, Wanda. I am well. I am well. And yourself? <laughs> oh, I'm okay. I'm okay. It was really great seeing you yesterday um, at the Marsh in this wonderful, intimate conversation with Robert Townsend. Um, and the d- director of, of the Marsh. It was so awesome to look look in, you know, the um, the various tiles uh, in the uh, in the application and say, oh, who do I know? And then and then going to the chat room and just checking the names of the people. I'm like, oh yeah, I know her. I know him. I know the other. And then and then for the people that I knew, like you, I sent you a little message like, hey, Damien, I see you. <laughs> Isn't this I'm cool? I'm glad that you did. It was a pleasure. <laughs> that was a, that was an amazing get together. To be so many people, it seemed quite intimate. Oh, it was really, really wonderful. And it's so interesting how how can we can have intimacy in cyberspace, right? I mean, you know, like really? Zoom. Zoom is really like if if anybody had stock, they're gonna be they're gonna be doing very well because everybody's zooming all over the place. <laughs> oh, that's a fact. <laughs> like mm-hmm. it or not. Yeah, totally, yeah. And I don't know, when's the last time we had you on the air? And I want to give folks your last name, Damian Brown, and then I'm going to give, I'm going to do your bio so people who don't know you can know you a little bit better. But when's the last time you were on the air? Because um, you are one of our favorite guests. Oh, thank you so much. That's so sweet to hear. <laughs> um, I, I believe that it was perhaps at the beginning of um, the season last year mm-hmm. for A Midsummer Night's Dream. Right, right. Company. Yeah, mm-hmm. Okay. That was, it. that was the last time. Yeah, and then I'm trying mm-hmm. to think, was that before I saw you and you gave that wonderful talk at the um, – California Lawyers for the Arts, 
um, conference? Was that before, yes, or, or did I see you at that, and then I, I saw you after? Hmm? I believe that the uh, conference was first. Okay, okay, yeah. Yeah, the uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, that was phenomenal, and, and I know that was your idea, you know, as um, are you a board member or artist in residence? I know you're artist in residence, but are you also a board member? Because I know, you know, you, uh, you know, the uh, – the artistic director of the carriers, I mean, they really, you know, what you recommend has weight. <laughs> you know, you're not just like throwing right. a question to. <laughs> yeah, I, I really do appreciate that, especially being uh, not a fully committed board member. So mm. I'm just very appreciative of that consideration that I get there. Right, it's, uh, yeah. It's a good thing to have. Mhm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, really great to have a platform like that, like that, like that, and to have someone like you, um, to be able to, um, you know, to understand how how image making is so important, right? I mean, in in a culture where we don't see positive um, images of of people of African descent, we don't see enough of them anyway. Um, you know, you could go for a whole, um, you know, academy. Um, your awards presentations, and and you could count on maybe one or two hands how many people of African descent are being honored, um, and and then you would think, well, how come this film, or how come that, you know, whatever, or how come that record, if right. you know, we're talking music or whatever, um, didn't get nominated, and and then you think, wow, this mm-hmm. one that was really positive, but this is the one that gets nominated. <laughs> Um, this one right, is the right. one that gets awarded. This is the one that gets recognized. Like, huh? Mm-hmm. It's sort of like reinforcement that's, that's, of, of negative stereotypes yeah. sometimes. Oh, mm-hmm. absolutely. It certainly feeds into someone's agenda. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. But then people like you, you know, who, who do, who are on stage and all, you know, in front of cameras, you know, you have an opportunity to, to present a different different uh, narrative and a different story and to put things in context. So, you know, we're really happy, you know, that you are are, are here doing this kind of work, you know, because sometimes, because you don't have to, you know, you could, you know, just work your own agenda. <laughs> you don't have to work an agenda that includes other people of our community, you know. So when you do well, we all do well, so to speak, right? <laughs> You're not necessarily a solo well, show. You're a... Uh, more uh, uh, communal Absolutely. show, you know, in that um, you're thinking about us in, in, in your portrayals. Absolutely. Just like, you know, I think about other people like, you know, Cicely Tyson and Sidney Poitier, you know, who they wouldn't they wouldn't just like, okay, well, I'm not doing that role. I just won't, won't be in that many movies or whatever because <laughs> I'm not, that's yeah. not, that is not positive. That's not uplifting our community. Yeah. No. I, I believe that there is a, a great value to the affected class by being mm. selected in what you mm. choose to do and what you choose to associate yourself with. And um, I think that is a great thing to have. And like everything, we we have to have boundaries. Because if we don't, I don't understand the good that we can do if we don't have boundaries. Mm-hmm. Know when we're hurting. Know when we're helping. And right. care. 
Mhm. Yeah, yeah, certainly, certainly. And um, you know, um I first saw you uh in your in your first public uh performance and you were on the, on our show too to talk about your Othello and that was at the Marin Shakespeare Company four years ago. Like wow, two thousand sixteen. Yeah. And um and you um let's see, I'm trying to think, uh achieving what has never been done before by a first time actor. You got the honor of being best lead actor in various theater critic, uh, critic circle, and um, and it was just like so amazing. You know, we just finished speaking about um, uh, a, a, another black general, um, you know, uh, Tariq, you know, who was a Moor. Tariq, yeah. And then you, we, yeah, and then we got your Othello's like a Moor, and I'm like, so you you probably know mm-hmm. Tariq, right? Um, the, the historic character. So I, I know the, I'm, yes, I'm familiar with the history. Very, very familiar. Mm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Did you did you study that when you were preparing for your Othello? I had I came into the role of Othello with a with a healthy um familiarization with history of the Moors and mm-hmm. barriers, uh Akebalani or African or whatever you want to call the kingdom mm-hmm. and, and leaders. So mm-hmm. I did draw upon all those things to help me because I certainly had no formal training, so I needed everything that I could get to assist me. And, um, yeah. One of the, yeah. Yeah. Well, you say that, and good. then we think, well, I don't know, you know, maybe some people just have it in their genes, Damien, you know? <laughs> maybe you're pulling you know, out something that you didn't even know was there <laughs> when you said, hmm. I, I mean, it's so I funny, your story about how you, how you became, you know, an actor, you know, like you weren't even you weren't even planning to join the Shakespeare Company. No, no, absolutely not. I, not for a second did I take that as a serious consideration. And to speak of not having any formal training and doing well acting, I think that, and this may sound strange to say, but I think a lot of people understand that. Being in a marginalized class in this country, understanding the history of such marginalization in this country, and growing up in the Southeast, I think that every person knows how to act for survival, whether it be the survival of one physical self or the survival of one's mental health. You have to learn to pretend to be okay with certain things that are completely unnatural. And I I don't think that there's too large of a gap between the person who acts like they don't know they're being paid 20% less than their counterpart who's not black and the person who pretends to be a general when they've never been in the military. I I don't think that it's such a large jump if you know how to draw on those things that you see all around you. That's my take on that. Yeah. So you said uh, growing up in the southeast. Where where is the southeast? In Jackson, Tennessee. Mm, mm-hmm. 
Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful terrain. One of the most aesthetically pleasing states that I've ever gone to. But there are definitely some thorns beneath the rose petals <laughs> that one has to be wary of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So are, do you have people there? And if so, um, how are I, they? I do. Um, you know, they are they have a targeted um, population for this, for this coronavirus. I mean, it is the South. And mm-hmm. there are, there's a culture of unhealthy eating, although it is delicious. And diabetes abound in the South. I have uh, several siblings there, cousins, aunts. Um, the majority of my family still exists in, in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I have a, a brother who was in the hospital during the time that they became aware of uh, COVID-19. And he went through dialysis. Mm-hmm. He had, had a stroke. And he was pretty much what we were. He felt like a threat almost, although I'm sure it wasn't intended to be. It, it, it felt like a threat when the, uh, when the hospital staff told us that we would not be allowed to come in and see him. They was already having difficult times with him because he was not coherent most of the time and resistant to strange people around him. And uh, they said that, hey, you, you're not going to be able to come and see him. And this thing may run rampant in here, so I mean, we can keep him here. You can take him home. Well, of course, took our chances of him being at home. And um, just that that type of thing back there it keeps me out of here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, they are they are doing as well as can be expected considering that they have so many pre existing conditions, probably more than a than the average Californian or people who have lived on the West Coast or other other more, I would say, progressive areas. And so it's, it's, it's progressive, huh? I don't know. I you know, you think about you think about racism, right? <laughs> yeah. There are more progressive yeah. areas where racism is not as visible. Like, yeah, well, it's well, here know, in it's California. <laughs> Very, very loose term that I use. Yeah, I, I often <laughs> say that. I mean, where there is a racist, there is a race. And I think that the honorable thing about the South is that it is considered rude to hide it from you. Mm, mm-hmm. And there is that seven hospitality. So I have to let you know this is how I feel. And in many, many ways, that is far more uh, harmless than the other brand that exists. And we find that in places that we loosely refer to as progressive. That's been my reality in my Mm. few years on this planet. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. And and how's your, your daughter? Wonderful. Um, oh, 
three of my brothers are well. My sons are great. My grandchildren are wonderful. You got grandchildren <laughs> too? Oh my goodness! Wow. As, as many as I have children. <laughs> I, I was six, really? six grandchildren, and uh, yeah, and um, they wow. are they're nice. doing very well, and I'm, it's just killing me that I can't be spoiling them beyond good sense right now and sending them back to mom and daddy. <laughs> I'll get to do that soon. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Wow, yeah, because when I, when I text you yesterday, you know, to ask you, you know, so how are you doing, you know, with this isolation? And you said, um, um, well, you know, you've had a lot of experience with isolation. I'm like, what? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I totally years, forgot years. that. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah. yes. Well, before, before we go there, because that's why I have you on to talk about, you mm-hmm. know, coping tools, because um, I've been having uh, consciously inviting people on the air to talk about, I call it melanin magic sessions, uh, a special series of of shows and featured guests that, you know, healers who leave our audience with tools we can use to strengthen ourselves uh, during a time when isolation is encouraged when the soul cries for communion. So I was like, yeah. Damien would be great because he's such a good storyteller, too. And he has all these stories that I've never heard. <laughs> and some I have heard, and I don't mind hearing again. So let me let me finish your bio real quickly. So um, you, um, you've you appeared uh, since your Othello um, debut as best lead actor, um, you know, um, honor um, through Bay Area Critics Circle. You've appeared at the Seagull in the Seagull, Seagull um, at Utopia Theater Project, uh, while Africa, that was awesome, and the Farm at Theater First, and you went, won another um, Bay Area Theater Circle, Critics Circle Award for, for the uh, the Farm, and Dance of the Holy Ghost with Ubuntu, and Benedict and Much Ado About Nothing, which we were speaking about last summer at Marin Shakespeare. And you teach parenting classes at the San Francisco Sheriff's Department for at-risk youth. And you also um, are a teaching artist and mentor at Alameda Juvenile Facility and Youth Prison at OH Close and Chad Facilities in Stockton. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, you might want if you want to add anything to what you're up to. I know you are you are doing some development around. Um, a film project or a series, a TV series or something. <laughs> yeah, yes. Uh, first off, there's nothing I would like to add. There's something I, I regrettably have to take away. Uh, I'm no mm. longer teaching those classes in San Francisco Sheriff's Department or prep. I'm no longer. Oh. Uh, I'm no longer contracted with um, Community Works West, who was. Oh. You know, running that because I became artist in resident for Moran Shakespeare Company and that pulled me too far away and um and there was other reasons too logistic reasons that I had to uh, stop doing that. But I certainly have to I can't exist unless I'm doing some of those things and that's how I got to Alameda Juvenile Hall and Stockton Youth Prison. So mm-hmm. yeah, perhaps I'll I'll do that again. You know, in the uh, in the not too distant future, 
but uh, that part I'm no longer doing. Although I'm still very close with a lot of the uh, young people that I was mentoring. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and give me back, uh, please direct me back to the question. <laughs> thinking about that is so much about that um, that I just said. Oh no, no problem. Yeah. Um. So. Um, oh, the filming yeah, project. Know. The filming project. Yeah, the film. Yeah, because yeah, um, when you were um, yeah, you were talking to um, to Robert Townsend uh, yesterday. Um, you asked a question, and 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 I don't remember. I think we you've told me about your writing. You know, um, you you've mm-hmm. got a lot of things written. You know, plays. You know, stories. You know, screenplays. Yeah. You know, treatments. Yeah. <laughs> I do. That you know. Strangely, that was the field in which my attention was cemented. I didn't have any desire to be an actor whatsoever. I had a desire to tell stories mm-hmm. and um, to share or give voice to, to so many who had only been heard amongst those few that had the pleasure of living around them for a period of time in their life possibility of a platform that is large enough to carry those values and lessons globally is just very, very attractive to me. And um, so I must start filming some of these stories that I have written. That was what I always wanted to do. And, of course, acting, acting, sidetrack you from whatever it is else that you want to do. Although I appreciate acting. I I love it. I didn't think that I would as much as I do. But I also have that uh, first love that's still burning at me. And um, and that was my question to um, Mr. Townsend last night. Being one who's not uh, formally trained at this and taking such great inspiration from his path and not being formally trained and just jumping in there and making it happen, is it a gamble worth taking for me to do or should I wait and get the proper uh, professional staff? And I believe that I knew the right path in that, but he certainly, he certainly, uh, validated, you know, my thoughts. Because if you can afford it, if you have the assistance, you have the, if you have access to them, get them. And uh, it saves a lot of time. And, and I do have some access to some of those things. And the pitch that he gave me was so wonderful. I believe that I wrote that down verbatim. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I'm certainly going to be doing that very soon. I'm working on some of those things right now. And I'll mm-hmm. be, the community will be receiving some uh, some requests to do reads, table reads, and uh, hopefully we can do some table reads soon. If not, there'll be some Zoom reads just to really mm-hmm. get other ears on these, on these things. Yeah, that should be really awesome. Um, yeah, definitely let me know, um, you know, when when the uh, the table reads 
are happening. And and I'd like to audition. I think that would be fun. I think that would be great. I'd love to have you. I would. Okay. I haven't <laughs> had the pleasure of seeing seeing that side of the artist. You are. <laughs> yeah, that would be fun. <laughs> So, so tell our audience how how you happen to have experience with isolation and you know having having to be with yourself. Um, mm. Well, you know, um, the California Department of Correction, and then later the California Department of Correction and her rehabilitation, which came later. When you are a person who stands on principles and holds them, you will find yourself in ad seg, what they call administrative segregation or the whole or shoe program quite often. <laughs> I found myself there. I mean, I spent, I spent years in the hole. So the, the bulk of the work that I produced, my, my script, my story, they were done at those times. There was something about the the lack of the chaos of being on the main line that allowed me to ground much better. And when you when you have only yourself to contend with, that as my dad used to say, if when you can become the person at two o'clock in the afternoon that you are at 2 o'clock in the morning, you'll be more of a complete man. And um, I've certainly found that to be true in for the whole. Because there was no, there was nothing to put a mask on for. It was just you. It was your situation. And it was you against the isolation. Are you going to fight it? Are you going to embrace it and use it? And um, I embraced it and used it. I found all of the value in it rather than look at all the things that I did not have. And someone might say that, well, when you're in prison, how much could you possibly have? Well, you know, when something becomes your world, when, when prison time becomes your world, that world is everything that you have. And when that world becomes <laughs> smaller, you notice all those things that you miss. It's something as simple as a physical contact on a visit. Now you're behind glass. You're only allowed to go ever so often. Little things like that, a, a full pencil, a full pen, rather than just the sleeve of an ink pen that you have to find paper and wrap around it and build it up into a pen that you're more familiar writing with. Um, you really start to get to the essence of who you are and what you experience. And what I found was the more that I focused on what could be the less important what I did not have seemed to be. And I and I have to say this, whether it's good or bad, there were times when it was 
time for me to leave the hole, I didn't want to leave. Hmm. So it's, it's, you could say that that was some form of a trauma, but I didn't, I didn't take it that way. I appreciated the solitude. I, I, I took that solitude and I filled it with all the things that I found to be lacking in myself. I had stories that had not been written. I wrote them out. I wrote them out when I ran out of paper. I wrote them on toilet paper. I wrote them on lunch uh, uh, bags. Um, that became the thing. I lived to tell the story, to remember, to remember so many things. Like I, I shared when my mom told me upon receiving this sentence, when my mom was in complete chaos after hearing life, my mom was a calming voice that said to me, Damien, come home, son, I raised. And when you're, when I was in isolation, her voice was very clear to me. And then I had to look into what was meant by those words. I had questions. I had answers. And they wrestled back and forth. I mean, was was she saying that clearly I was not the son at that moment? Or was she saying, don't change who you are? I had to wrestle with those things in order to meet the command of my mother. And then I had to run that by me. Am I okay with the son she raised? Is that something that I want to do? and measure those things against one another, and you have the time and the clarity to do that in isolation. And here, in in, in this time, we have a very mild form of that for someone such as myself and those who walk the path that I have walked. But to someone who has never been isolated like this, it could be just as impactful as it was for me inside. So I would urge a person who's going through this to try the same prescription. Look at all the things that could be done with this peace of mind. I watched watched a historical document once on Africa, and the late Ozzie Davis was narrating, and he said something that that stuck with me. I believe it. I watched this when I was like 14 years old, but the phrase always stuck with me. He said, the reason that, and it was said by an educator during the time, I think that had gone to Timbuktu, when this statement was made, it said that the reason that the lowly conquerors, the European invaders or whatever, would never reach even the lowest rung of spiritual development as an African is because it's very difficult for them to be content in an empty room And it took me years of processing to to 
said along what that meant for me. And um, those things are where the jewels are. When you can be content with stripping away of everything and just be there with yourself, with your 2 a.m. self, the self that puts on no shows for anyone, is brutally honest, is real with oneself, and then muster up the courage enough, if you're a writer, to speak it, to write it, to pull that out of you. It is a therapy that I can imagine any Ph.D. director giving you better insight. Uh, it, it is it is amazing. It is, a, it is a chance to mend relationships with yourself, with, with others. And there is something I believe that is missing in our communication with, with all of the distractions that we have naturally. I mean, how often do we check our cell phones? You know, even those of us who are very aware that they are distractions, we we're still tethered to it by an economic, if not social, necessity. Mm-hmm. When we write a letter, we commit so many parts of our mind and our body to center on the object of our intent. Yeah, if I'm writing to my son and I'm sending him a text, I could be multitasking. Hmm. And the message will certainly reflect that. But if I'm sitting down alone, uninterrupted, and I take a pen and I take a parchment of paper and I have to think and then that is, to me, that is truly being in that space. It is really the best thinking of you message. We could send a text, you know, on the way to lunch, say, thinking of you. Or we could write a letter, even if it's one page, and mail it. It means so much more to receive. And, and, and I was perhaps guided that way with my mom. My mom would not allow me to type letters to her from prison. Any time that I would do it just to build up my typing skills, I would get a letter from her much more quickly than I would when I would pen a letter. But the letter was always alarming. It was, 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 why are you typing me letters? I'm not your business partner. What are you hiding? What are you trying to hide from me? And I said, no, I'm not trying to hide anything. I'm just working on my on my typing skills. No, write me. I want to see your hand. I want to see your stroke. Hmm. And my mother had a beautiful penmanship, but she also had a deeper insight into where that uh, reveals or exposes a person's mindset. So that's one thing that we could certainly do in this time. If we could just take the time to sit down and to send a letter to someone that matters to you. Pen, pen a letter to yourself, your inner thoughts of which you dare not 
you can do so much with isolation. And look at the things you like to be. I mean, there are some of us who who have said for years that we want to get back to our true physical selves, the stuff that feels good and doesn't pat too much after hitting a few flights of stairs. And perfect opportunity to just do a little bit every day to create your ritual, not the ritual imposed upon you by the um, the working structure and the way the traffic moves and does not move and, and buying cycles. Now, the one that you would create for yourself now, this is an opportunity for a person to be the, as they should be, the primary architect of how their 24 hours go in a day. It would be very revealing. And so for for me in this time, this is, this is a gift. This is what you this is what you never expect to have if you're a citizen out here in the rat race as they call it. You never expect to have this time to sit down and to get to have FaceTime with your with your children and not not iPhone FaceTime. <laughs> I mean looking mm-hmm. them in the face when they talk and, and not be checking emails. I know some of us are from home. I am working from home, but it, it's a difference. It's a difference because you, you tend to have more time. Not everyone, I'm sure, but most of us, we have more time than we need. And just like when you want to know where your where your money is going and you're ready to buy a home or any significant purchase for education or what have you, we often get a ledger. You know, we record, where's my money going? How much did I spend at, at Pete's, at Starbucks? How many times did I eat out? You, you, you check that because it is, it has a value. Opportunity costs uh, weigh on that. I say that it weighs even more so with time. And time must be measured the same way and watched. And we'll see how much time we really have. I remember times when I was thumbing through the Internet, uh, kind of contemplating on how little time I had. And I had been on that for 25, 30 minutes. (laughs) That was wasted time. (laughs) So we said... You know, it's interesting, the things that you'll find out about oneself if you're bold enough to to take on that journey. And isolation allows you the opportunity to do that. And you never have to share that with anyone mm-hmm. because the person who's going to benefit from those in a revealing more than anyone will be yourself. I don't know if that helps anyone, but I, I certainly hope that it does. That's just certainly yeah. helping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I could, um, I could see how 
you know, punishment was actually opportunity because it's all the way you think about something as to its impact, you know, whether it's a negative or a positive, it's how you frame it, right? So Right. So you were so you were, you know, sort of using, you know, the whole or ad seg administrative segregation as a retreat, you know, um, as a time, you know, to um you know, people people go off to writing retreats all the time. And so this was mm-hmm. a writing retreat or um like you know, like let's say for instance if you were in a um a monastery, you know, it was an opportunity to get deeper and to find out who you are. So then you could um, you know, sort of figure out, okay, who am I and then what do I need, you know, to be a complete person. Right. And to do an inventory, right. like what are my gifts? Because everybody has gifts, right? So what are mine? I haven't had a chance to, like, be still and figure it out because I've been on defense, you know, trying to stay alive. So now it's like, right. ain't nobody here but me. All right, let me just, like, right. relax into this mm-hmm. and do, like you say, the inventory. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, and there was a thing that to me when I first entered into this, you know, that was foreign ground to me until I mm-hmm. saw the familiar the familiarities with where I had come from. People would say, mm-hmm. the more seasoned would say, little brother, do the time, don't let the time do you. And 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 today, I can equate that in this situation with don't think so much about when this is going to be lifted. Therein lies the agony. Take the time that you have before it's lifted and do something for yourself. Because when, when one's inside, the difference between those who hold their mind and their, their dignity on the inside and those who lose it is the difference between how much they're focusing on. When am I going to go home? When am I going to get out of here? When is this going to end? That is, that is right there with the coward dies a thousand deaths, a brave man only one. So don't think about that will take care of itself. There will be a day after. And you can rest assured that it'll look nothing like the day before. But what that means to you. Prepare for that. You know, what would you do? If if, if people meditate, get into that still place. Even if you don't know how to meditate, sit still, be quiet, ask yourself before this quarantine, someone had said, There's nothing you can do about it. There's going to be two months or three months that we're just fixing to hold the country. Sit out. You have two months, three months, and these are the parameters such as you had. What would you do with that time? What could you do with that time? I say in some cases, three months, depending on what your interests are, is a time to be released within a whole different profession with knowledge in a field. There are so many people giving free information right now on various topics. 
I mean, there's a lot of ways to pursue (laughs) dreams in this time. Some people are being held on the sidelines from a job that they despise. But, of course, we understand what that means, and we know why we do such work. We're in this system of a, you know, monetization system. We have to pay for things. But it's it's not serving their spirit to go to that job every day. That job is giving you two months or three months to sit out. What would you do being away from a job that you have despised or felt that was beneath your qualifications? What could you do with two or three months? These are the things I think benefits one to look at. And that way they won't allow the time to do them. They'll be doing the time, making the most of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but I just think about also um, uh, when when there's, like the only turmoil or agitation is sort of within yourself, so you can you can settle that. But your environment is is safe, and you know if you're alone, you have you know what you need, um, like you have enough food, you have secure shelter. You know today is the um, the the national call for a national strike of people who who rent to not pay their rent today. Mm-hmm. Um, when when I found out, yes, I received it. Because mine yeah. comes out. My mine comes out of my 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 checking account, so it's like, oh, it's gone. <laughs> it arrived today. It's like, oh well. Um, yeah, I can be there, you know, in solidarity. But my rent is paid. Sorry, folks. Just found I need I need I would have had a little needed a little more time to stop that transaction. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, there are a lot of people that have don't have economic security. You know, they weren't able to pay their rent for April. Um, if they wanted to, they they aren't able to pay it today because they didn't have a you know this this new language right social distancing as opposed mm-hmm. to physical distancing because we don't want to separate right. you know from each other emotionally and and psychologically mm-hmm. and spiritually we just want to you know put some space between us like physical space so I really like the way the governor says physical like once he realized that it was the wrong term that had become popular he stopped using it. Um, and he said mm-hmm. physical um, to be more accurate. Um, but I just think about people that, like yesterday, I, I drove into Oakland to go to the post office, and I saw some folks um, that looked like they didn't have anywhere to go, and they didn't have on masks, and they were very close to one another, and it looked like they were sleeping on the concrete. And I'm like, oh, that's really that's really sad, you know. Um, and that's really you know, like why why don't they have a place to go, and and you know it's, that's safe and secure and more comfortable than being out on the on the you know the city street in front of a closed up business, and so right. you know this idea of you know that you're talking about sort of what does a person do, and then you know if 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 you've got to survive like you're thinking about survival, so you can't necessarily use this time. Um, to go deep because you you need to use this time like you use all the other days before you know the pandemic mm-hmm. became recognized and and people were 
we're told to do these various things, and they can't. Um, and then I think also, um, on the other hand, as people that are incarcerated uh, in places like, you know, the county jails and I'm talking Santa Rita and Alameda County or the state prisons, and I'm thinking of some of the women's prisons where I know people there, like the Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla and the uh, uh, Correctional Institute or for Women, um, CIW and Corona. CIW. And, you know, you, yeah, CIW. And then you think about all, you know, you think about, you know, the federal prison in Dublin, and they all have their own, you know, different policies. But the main one is, you know, right. like people are not, they don't have protective gear. The COs or correctional officers, some of them are are taunting, you know, those that have less power with, you know, hey, we're not going to wear a mask, we're not going to wear gloves, you know, we're going to work when we're sick, whatever. Um, yeah, so what what do... What do people who are in those situations, and then and then you got the family right that's out here, so you're worried mm-hmm. about your loved ones or your friends, yeah. And so it's kind of hard to like manage this. This could be a blessing, you know, having this time, but then it's not a blessing when you can't, you don't have peace. <laughs> right. All right. It, it's um, you know, I I understand that that situation very well. The um what people inside are definitely experiencing and um, it's not quite as um, it's not quite as vulnerable in some respects as those who are homeless although you could say that a person who's homeless could go into extreme isolation or with no one around but that creates another issue for themselves where to get the food and inside there is, um, for many years, we as citizens of this country, if not the world, have allowed the attitude of they're in prison, they're out of sight, they're out of mind, they don't have anything coming. You've allowed that, that attitude to be the ambient climate of such institutions. And now it creates great danger. I, I think that, like all things, when we when we get the benefit of reflecting, we should be seriously asking ourselves, what can we do to make certain that civilized behavior, if you can attribute that to a place such as a prison, and it seems like an oxymoron, but civilized behavior in a prison becomes the rule rather than it it becomes the thing that makes justice not needed. Civilized behavior Mm -hmm. is the best justice that you can have. And then when you can't get civilized behavior, then you seek justice. And then when you can't get justice, well, many people Many people move to a retaliation of a kind. It, it, it's a necessary, um, I guess you would say, a derivative of the lack of lack of justice. It, it is natural as you know the dew in the early morning hours, and I think 
this affords a person a lot of time to measure what's what's of value. We have how we treat the the, the, the least of us is should be how we treat the, the, the best of us. We should have a standard. We don't have a standard. I mean, you can look at leadership is the first problem. You look at every state is doing something different. Mm-hmm. And a person can drive from one state to the next with their different standards and protocols and, you know, infect someone else. If, if you know, and I know that there's a large number of people who really don't believe that it's that serious and, I get that too. I understand. I understand that. But there are people with something, and, and, and they're dying, and we're disproportionately affected. Mm-hmm. I think that we should be asking and demanding. We should be demanding our so-called leaders to be more civilized to those who are incarcerated, because most of those, most of us come home. And I remember that was I was at Solano State Prison. If I can share this, this with you, this I had just I had been in the hole for about nine months with the previous institution I was in. Matter of fact, I transferred there from the hole. And mm-hmm. when I got there, shortly thereafter, we were on a quarantine. I believe it was. Um, uh, was a neurovirus quarantine, I believe. And we were at that point before the federal government had seen how packed the prisons were. This is the days of the triple bunks and the dorms were just crammed, packed with men. And it was in the summer, late August, I believe. It was hot. And you're in these prefabricated concrete structures so the heat is, is very oppressive and the humidity. Now, we hadn't been on lot, we, we hadn't been free to do the jobs, the various jobs that we had. So the porters were not emptying the trash. We were on lockdown. So the trash was running over the garbage cans all over the building. You had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. We had eight showers. One of the showers had about four, five heads. The others, just two. We had over 400 people in that building. And you had about as many uh, uh, toilets. Now, keep it, neurovirus is something that attacks your digestive system. You know, so you, you could often be vomiting and have diarrhea at the same time. Now, we're in this situation whereby we're jam-packed. It's filthy. And the guards that I saw thought that it was funny. Hmm. And so we weren't even allowed to take showers because they said they didn't have enough staff. You get caught in the shower, that's a write-up. A write-up, you get ready to go to the board, means that you can't follow the rules, stay in prison a few more years. So I remember approaching one of the guards, and he was on the stairway. I caught him on the stairway, and he was walking down, and I 
explain to him the impossible conditions under which we were, we were living. How this is this is not right on any level. And he said, "Well, I can't do anything about it." I, I said, "Well, you do understand that your uniform does not provide uh, protection for you from catching this and bringing it home to your family." I suggest that rail, his hands were on the rail to the stairs. I said, your hands on that rail right there. You touch your lunch pail, you touch your jacket, something you don't know, and you take it home and your child touches it. You're all sick and somebody could die. And you think it's okay? You feel like you're removed from the responsibility of ensuring that we get these basic things because the warden said no. You have a responsibility for the safety of your family to be petitioning to that warden because it's once you come through that door, you are with us. And what we have, we can give to you, and what you have, you give to us. When he saw it in that frame, he immediately went and got on the phone. And about not even 30 minutes later, there was a call over the building, and they would start allowing showers dorm by dorm. People have to see where they are affected with something before they have that drive to move. And, and, and if this isn't a great enough example of that, by something happening in Wuhan, China, and we're on quarantine in the Bay Area, I don't know what 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 can make it clear to a sane person. So these are the things that we have to ask, and 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 we have to ask ourselves when we drive somewhere. It is so nice not to be in a traffic jam. Is that something that we like the day after to look like, or will we will we be more focused on? How do we cut down the traffic and make moving about less stressful? How can we have this air quality that we have now? What do I need to be engaged in to ensure that as we go through this new normal, we are maintaining those unexpected gifts that we got as a result of less smog in L.A. and India and, and so many other places. Mm-hmm. Is that something we like to keep? How much re- re- rejuvenation has the earth been allowed to experience as a result of us sitting down somewhere for a minute? Is that something we like to keep? Whether we just go back to normal routine and forget all of those things, what we know, we just unknow. This is an opportunity to hold people's feet to the fire and to change things. And I, I really uh, appreciate, I appreciate the potential gift of this isolation because, for once, everybody has the opportunity to be on the same page. And when we reflect, we can find new solutions. And I hope that's the thing that we all take away from this that we've discovered some things in this that we don't want to lose. We'd like to keep. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I really thought that it was, I thought that it was unconscionable to have 
your citizens in this situation and not forgive um, mortgages, uh, car notes, mm-hmm. things like that. that is, it would have been, yes, it would have been easier. It would have been easier to forgive that than it was to create this money. But creating the money to create the interest, <laughs> mm-hmm. and and so we understand what is important to them. But we are the many. We have to move on the things that is important to us because in a democracy, I understand that we don't behave as one. I mean, the leaders don't operate as one, but we understand that this is supposed to be a democracy. The many should have the greatest say. And the many of those being tossed around and malaffected by this. This is an opportunity for us to really do something about our situation. This this master-slave relationship that we are all involved in and becoming more and more clear, black, white, brown, whatever, this is clear. We all have to, we have six months, those of us who haven't been able to pay our mortgages and things, we have six months from the release to get that. And an economy that's going to be shifted with some jobs that are not going to be there, mm-hmm. which creates a lot of competition, which would definitely equate to a lower living standard because now it's the employer's market. The things to consider. We have to demand more. We have to demand more than cute words, well-put-together sentences that still leave people just where they started. You know, the question that, that strikes me is, where were all these billions, trillions of dollars when I saw the old man sleeping under the bridge before this. But I don't know. Sorry about the uh, changing. <laughs> no, no, that's why I invited you to, you know, just just to sort of reflect. Um, yeah, yeah, I was thinking when you were talking about um, I've been, um, I just love Gem of the Ocean. Uh, August Wilson's first play uh, that wasn't written first, but I just so like the idea of you know looking at our people, you know, black people, people of African descent, as the gem of the ocean, and the and the city of bones, right? That is like that is the place, you know, where our ancestors are, and that's where we go to get rejuvenated, and that's where we go for forgiveness, and that's where we go to wash our soul our souls, you know, as citizen does in the name citizen, right? Citizen in a mm-hmm. land that doesn't that despises you. So he has to go, you know, wash his soul so he could feel um I guess um he could feel um like he um deserved to walk among the living. And uh, yeah. and so anyway, I was just thinking, you know, um uh, I don't know how familiar you are with this particular play. Um, do you remember when Aunt Esther uh, Tyler talks about 
memory when she's talking to Black Betty and how she needs, you know, she wants someone when she's gone to hold the memories, you know, or continue the legacy mm. that that she has started. Um, and and she's she yeah. thinks that she's got um, and uh, she's got Black Betty will be the one, you know, but then mm-hmm. she's not quite certain uh, because of some things that she sees Black Betty uh, sort of. Um, thinking or not thinking, or thinking and not saying, you know, when Citizen comes on the scene. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so anyway, I was just wondering um, if uh, if you maybe could, maybe, because uh, we've gone over and I don't want to take up too much more of your time, um, but talk about sort of memory and and sometimes, you know, when you, when you have an opportunity, if we look at uh, this uh, sheltering in place as an opportunity, um then, you know, when you're alone, you can go to places that you might not remember are there. And then when you get there, you're like, ooh, I don't want to be here. <laughs> but, you know, right. like maybe you need to spend a little time there. <laughs> so so what do you do with those yeah. memories? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it, it, it's, it's certainly an opportune time to explore new things and, the risk takers have always made the greatest influence and mm-hmm. it's a risk involved in spending time where you're not comfortable. You know, and a lot of times that's between your own ears and in your heart. Spend time in those places that we spend too much time running away from. Work provides a unique opportunity to run away from things. Sometimes it provides an opportunity to run away from having them deal with the uh, the troubled teenager at home, you know, or, or the, the the wife, the husband, who is constantly speaking what they need. It, we have to be bold enough. We have to just allow that type of vulnerability because I believe when we go into those spaces, if it was true for me, when I went into those spaces, the memories that I thought I had forgotten, I remembered more things that it seemed that I ignored as a child when I was in isolation and going inside myself. This is where the gems are. I truly believe they were certainly where they were for me, and I don't believe that I'm much different from another human being. But we have habits that we get accustomed to and we it's safe. It's our idea of safe. And it's just an illusion that that's really safety. Where there's no new discoveries and no new challenges and, and, and journeys to go on, how is that life and living? Everything is monotonous. Nothing new. That that really causes the light to dim. There's an opportunity here to do some things that I say may seem not very safe, but I believe that they're even more safe. You're 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 alone. Sit and have that talk with your elder if they're present, with 
that child, if they're present, or your spouse, if they're present, your sibling. Go into the uncomfortable spaces and see what you find. See what becomes familiar instantly. You know, we, we have to, we have those coming after us. We should clearly see that we are in, we're dealing with limited resources and and we're dealing with a few controlling all of that. And we can have children and be joyful about it, but not cautious, you know, not have that urgency, okay, this child is going to face this thing. What do I give it? What do I want it to remember? What 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 value do I want to place in this child? These are the things that we have to tackle now because I think that, you know, they say there's a lot of domestic violence during this time because people find that they haven't really been around each other for a while because of the, the rat race and they find out that they don't like each other or they find out that they really, really like each other and there's going to be a lot of children born in a few months. <laughs> there's some things to record to share with them about I think that's one of the one of the biggest things that my children gained from me being in isolation. I would write them incessantly. Hmm. They knew what I felt, what I was afraid of, what I felt that I knew, the things that I was still questioning because I accepted that I may not live through that experience for a lot of reasons. I came to that conclusion. Mm -hmm. So I wrote to them like it was going to be the last thing that I had to say to them. So I wrote them about topics, and my son told me today, Dad, you didn't write us letters, you sent dissertation. (laughs) (laughs) But it it was this desperate thing that it was all about my children for me. I wanted them to know what I knew and what I didn't know and what I was afraid of and what I was confident in so that they would know who I was at the moment I was no more. Hmm. So I, I believe that we should be recording now what this means to us. What are the what are the positives that we've seen in this? What are the negatives? Because this can be a great resource for us to reach back on in this life mm-hmm. and find what's in and just the day after will come. Prepare for that and ask yourself what are you going to be okay with keeping, and what do you think should be gone, removed, and let's go upset about the business of trying to remove the things that should not be in a, if we're moving towards a civilized society. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what I, I think. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah. Um, could I ask you a question? Absolutely. Um, 
and you can tell me you don't want to say share, but I was wondering how old were you when when you were incarcerated? Like how old were your children and how old were you when you all were parted physically? I think I was twenty I think I was twenty two. Mm-hmm. I was twenty two, maybe twenty three, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but it's I found when I entered prison that I was a different youngster than the youngsters I was around. I mean, a lot of a lot of the young men had they had been living with their parents or they were on the streets with various gangs. Some were, you know, with their girlfriends and and there were a few, a very few who were married. I was in that I was in that group of I was a father, I was a husband, you know, I was I had that southern mentality of a man has to be um productive. Mm-hmm. So I didn't I didn't come in I looked like a kid. But my thinking was very different from many of the young men my age. And uh, it, it certainly had a, an effect. And I was held. I was I have to say that. I, I didn't I didn't come up in, in a home that love was not present in, that I that I didn't feel supported, that I I mean I had an entire community. My uncles were like surrogate dads. And for not when the man that raised me, my pop was deported back to Ghana. You know, my uncles stepped in. I didn't miss a beat. You know, my aunts were present. I could go I had a huge family. I could go anywhere and sleep, anywhere and eat and I was welcome. So it, it, it made a difference to have because I never felt fragile in the world. So and I know that that was a gift that a lot of people don't have. And I understand how important that goes into shaping a person. And then there are some people who didn't have any of that, and they came out more wonderful. You know, different people respond differently to different stimuli. Mm -hmm. So it's, but that was my experience. And uh, my young was, not the type of young that they were accustomed to dealing with. I was I was mm-hmm. a southern young. <laughs> yeah, and and how old were your children? I had time? Steph. Steph, they were five, four, three, two, and one. Hmm. Mhm. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was uh, moving, moving too quickly, too quickly, and that's a whole different story. <laughs> but, uh, the things, things that I had that was part of those reflections that I had to draw out of myself in isolation and be brutally honest with myself, you know, in order to have the mind that I have today in reflecting on those things. So when when are we gonna have that? When are you gonna have that like table reading? Are you thinking now, like within a month or so? 
Because um, you have all this writing. Uh, You've got like a whole library, it sounds like. Oh, like yeah, you could I just, have, yeah. Oh, yeah. I have, I, have, I have quite a bit. I have quite a bit. But I've also learned a lot. I've learned a lot since I've been home about what it takes and, and structure. So I want to make certain that I give it those technical additions that I knew nothing about when I was away. Mm-hmm. So I'm um, I don't want to put the time on it because then I'll mm-hmm. it won't be authentic. I'll be pushing to the clock, and I don't want right. to do that. Mm-hmm. So, but I promise you, when I'm ready, I will yeah. contact you <laughs> and let you know That's that okay, I can see the window now. I, I dare say it will be in a week or two or three or what. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's going to be so cool. Wow. Yeah, yeah I was really so looking forward cool. to when you um, you give me that ring. It's like, oh, my gosh. I'm so excited. <laughs> you Everybody, will get it. I mean, there are a whole lot of us that are, like, going to be really excited <laughs> when you decide. Well, you have my word. To, um, you will, you mm-hmm. will definitely be the first call. <laughs> oh, wow, first call. Dang, that's heck of a Yeah, nice. you're, you're, the, wow. you're the first person that acts. <laughs> oh, Oh, okay, that helps. <laughs> yeah. I'm surprised, though, because I thought, like, everybody knew that you were doing this work because I've known yeah. it for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, they know, but, you know, people know, and then, you know, people are like, okay, well, I'm looking forward to hearing it or seeing it. And then, mm-hmm. then there are some people who take a little more assertive, like yourself, say, hey, I want to know when is this going to be. I want to know, but, okay, I will let you know. And, and I want to audition too. <laughs> I I remember that you you definitely definitely yeah, I can be, I can tell you cool. now you you already you already precast you already precast Ooh. super You're super pre-cast. cool yeah yeah I had a little I had a little um uh I I did that training um you know the social um uh with the social um. I forgot what it's called, the Marin Theater Company, uh, Soraya and um and Leslie mm-hmm. do this um um you know, using theater Marine for Sh- um, social change. Yeah, mhm. Right, yeah. exactly. So I, I did that uh that training and and then I uh I volunteered um and, and worked um, you know, in the uh Shakespeare at San Quentin, um doing, you know, a little dramaturgy and 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 um acting. And I was so nervous, I had to be on script. But it was still fun. <laughs> That's fun. That yeah, tight rope walking fun. without a net. That's fun. I yeah, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, I would, I would do really well in front of my, my mirror in the bathroom, and you know, and to myself. <laughs> and then I, I get there, you know, in the art, you know, the art space, and. Uh, I keep on asking, give me a line, give me a line. Oh, this is not working. And so then uh, I think Soraya said, you can be on script, Wanda. It's like, okay, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, so funny. I, when it comes to that, repetition, repetition, repetition. That's all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. I must have had to, I must need to start sooner, like like a month of repetition or something or something like that. Yeah, because I don't know. Because um, yeah. I think it was like, you know, it was the uh, program where, you know, the men write write their own play. and, uh, and Oh, so, yeah, yeah, uh, the uh, parallel play. The parallel play, yeah. And so um, mm-hmm. I was in, um, got cast as the mother in a, in a story. And, and so 
the writer, the playwright, he told me sort of what he wanted in the character. He told me, you write your part. I guess he thought if you write it, you can remember it. It's like, no, that didn't help either. But anyway. (laughs) (laughs) I got faith in you. You can, you can, you can do it. You, you, you can do that. It's uh, Mm -hmm. you just have to get started earlier. Yeah. Well, I have a history of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Because we used to do oratory um, in in when I was coming up in high school. Uh, I grew up in the Nation of Islam, and we would memorize chapters from Message to the Black Man. And, you know, we compete, like, who would mm-hmm. remember the most, right? Who could remember the longest yeah. chapter? And, and then, you know, you know, memorizing the Quran, too, you know, in Arabic and in English. Yeah. You know, so, uh-huh. so I've done that. Uh, it's just... It oh, just, I feast. <laughs> uh, hey. A little bit. Uh, Beautiful. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. That's a good thing. Yeah. Mhm. Right. Right. Yeah. But the um, I don't know. Maybe they just they were just so good, you know. The actors, you know, and yeah, it was. I don't know. But yeah. anyway, um, <laughs> I got faith in you. Yeah, you tell you what. Oh, thank you. Uh, it do the good thing about the the table read is you only have to familiarize yourself with the script so that mm-hmm. you know. So you read it responsibly. That's it. So you don't have to memorize all that. Not for a table mm-hmm. read. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh yeah, I know. Yeah. Then. <laughs> then you do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sure you know. Yeah. You know, you you would have in you know you will have, uh, I guess, um, techniques to help a person, you know, remember. Um, yeah, and I'll certainly have mine, but I guarantee you, you know, there's a lot of different ways. There's some mm-hmm. wonderful ways that work for some people that just don't do a thing for me. And then mm. my way works for some people and don't do a thing for some others. It's like anything, <laughs> but you'll, you'll mm. find your technique, and it will work for you. But we can definitely okay. help you get there. You can run through the checklist. Right. <laughs> okay, cool, cool. Oh, oh, that's something right. to look forward to. I'm excited. Well, thank you so much, uh, Damian uh, Brown, for this wonderful conversation. I mean, I knew it would be great. And you said, yes, in the text. I'm like, cool, no notice. It's tomorrow morning. We're talking last night. It's so great. Well, thank you so much for your generosity. It's been a lovely, lovely conversation. And looking forward you know, to sharing it with other audiences and listening to it again um, as we um, you know, sort of look at the benefits that come from, you know, Mother Earth sort of like saying, hey, y'all, you know, sit down and be still. Yeah, absolutely. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, take, as they say, take several seats right now. We'll, we'll, we'll be okay. We'll be right. okay. Exactly. Let's reflect exactly. a little. Mm-hmm. All right. Reflection never hurt anybody. <laughs> no. <laughs> True. Well, yeah. thank you so much for having me again. It's always a pleasure, uh, and uh, I'm, you know, I hope the uh, listeners can bear with me. I can be long-winded sometimes. I I got a couple of opinions. So, <laughs> well, you've you've been living grateful. a full you've lived a full life, and you know, and it's not over. So you know, when you've been here a uh, minute, you've got some things to tell, and some things to share, and so it's no problem. We it, we have the space to be able to, um, you know, offer you um, this this you know, this time to be able to, 
you know, just reflect. Um, a lot of people are doing reflect, reflecting now, and uh, and it's great to be able to capture that, you know, um, yeah. for others' benefits. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you immensely, and uh, I'm looking forward to having more conversations with you. All righty, super. Well, good luck on all that you're doing. <laughs> thank you so much, and thank you all so right. much, and I hope you have a wonderful day, and thank you for what you do. Oh, you're quite welcome. Have a good rest of today and this weekend and, and all the other time okay. that we have, you know, as we try to figure out. Well, actually, we don't need to figure it out. Just be with it, you know, as you say. Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. All right. Peace well, and Be blessings. well, dear sister. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> you too. <laughs> ah, that was so lovely. That was Damian Brown. And um want to let folks know that um, Crowded Fire in collaboration with UC Berkeley uh, Drama Department is having um, the uh, the play that um, <laughs> uh, Mina uh, Marita told us about um, on Wednesday on our show. It starts today, um, the 1st, and it goes through the 10th. And let me uh, give you those details just in case you weren't listening on Wednesday, and you want to catch this play, which it just sounds simply magnificent. I'm not going to be able to be there tonight, but the play is going to be up through uh, through the 10th, and um, and the play is uh, is by uh, Dustin Chen, and it's entitled Snowflakes or Rare White People. Sounds like a steak, huh? Rare white people, <laughs> and you can um. You can go to uh, events.berkeley.edu uh, calendar, and you can find the event. So that should be really, really fun, and it's free. And um, <clears throat> and also, um, I know there's supposed to be something happening um, around um, uh, May Day, which is um, a day where we look at unions and organizing. And uh, I think I posted that on Wanda's Picks for April because I haven't gotten May, May, the May events up. And oh, and today, um, uh, Keto Gambo uh, and her mom, Faye Carroll, are going to be at the Piedmont Piano Company, six to seven. I don't know if you all were able to catch uh, Glenn Pearson and um, uh, Glenn Pearson and oh man, I'm drawing a blank on. Uh, gosh, let me let me look this up. Um, let's see, piano. Keep my piano. Let's see. Uh, Pee my piano concerts. Let's see. Okay, so Faye Carroll is tonight. Oh, Nicholas Beard. Yeah, he was really, really awesome. Oh, um, and uh he has another Nicholas Beard and Glenn Pearson, but there's another um there's another concert coming up this month on the twelfth from six to seven thirty. And uh and Fair Carol is gonna be May fifteenth from seven to eight thirty. Um but tonight, like I said, um she's on from six to seven thirty with her daughter uh Keto Gamble on piano and that's gonna be a rare treat. It's not every day that we see Keto and she is phenomenal, phenomenal writer singer, um, composer, 
yeah, and 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 pianist, uh, she is just simply phenomenal. So that should be really great. And uh, and then see one more thing. Tonight is also the uh, fundraiser talent show from five to nine uh, for the uh, Asara Set Society, um, which is a, a society that has many chapters. There's a Bay Area chapter, but the uh, headquarters is in New York, in Brooklyn. And uh, and so it's going to be New York time, nine to midnight. But on our time, it's five to nine, and it's going to be really really fun. And so you could um, go to their website. Uh, there they have a Facebook site, and it's all there because I don't have the details in my mind. All I have, I think it might also be. Um, I think I might have posted that in Wanda's Picks for April. So you have to go check it out. So I am going to close with um, Archie Shep. I love Archie Shep, and I need to get some more of his music in my <laughs> in my in my collection because I keep on playing the same thing over and over again. But that's okay. Um, and I really like um, I like Revolution. Uh, yeah, I, I love all of his work that I have here. Um, but I really like Revolution. I like some of his other work. I need to get some other things in my in my catalog. And yesterday on uh, the International Jazz Day, uh, the 30th of April, I um, I I got um, a really wonderful uh, concert in my inbox, and it was Duke Ellington uh, performing a piece that uh, he wrote for the uh, first edition of the International. Um, a festival of Black Art and Culture in, um, I think it was in uh, in Nigeria, in Lagos, Nigeria. And so I had known that he was there because there were a lot of people there. Um, they had a contingent from the Bay Area that was curated by um, um, Arthur Monroe, and a lot of a lot of great great artists, dancers, visual artists, which include photographers, writers. You know, sort of converged from throughout the uh African diaspora on Africa to celebrate, you know, our collective beauty and to get to know each other. And so anyway, um I like I said I didn't know Duke Ellington was there, but it, it definitely makes sense that he would be. And so this is a piece that he wrote and so I'm gonna play that after um uh, Archie Shep's Revolution, if I can get it together in time. <laughs> so enjoy Revolution. My grandmother was born during the time of slavery. That was a time when black people didn't have saxophones. They didn't have trombones or trumpets. They didn't even have drums. All they had was their bodies. Their bodies. Sometimes the jaw bones of animals, pots and pans. This is a song she taught me that the slaves used to sing. 
pull up in Harlem. They're talking. They want to change. And down in Philadelphia, they're walking. They want to change I went to San Francisco, baby
I told her like this, I said, hey, we are the victims. You know what I'm going to tell my son? That death cloaks the Potomac in a scarlet shawl. And the pillow beneath you is not here. But honey, I want you to take this ex-cannibal's kiss and turn it into a revolution. Mama Rose. 
Don Calvert. Thank you very much, Paul Gonsalves. A number that we wrote in anticipation of our first visit to Africa after writing African music for 35 years. It uh, was a little over two years ago, and um, the place was Dakar, Senegal. The occasion, the first international festival of Negro arts, and the title is La Plus Belle Africaine. Thank you. 
Ray Connery, baritone. Russell Popo's clarinet. Victor Gaskins, the bass. 